Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. On the markets, joining us now is Gabriela Santos, JP Morgan Asset Management, Global Market Strategist. Gabby, let's just start there. Cash and the debate on the old cliche, <laughs> cash on the sidelines. What's left to allocate? There's actually still quite a lot left. John, actually, um, if we look at assets and money market funds, they had an increase um, after the pandemic hit uh, of about $1.2 trillion. Now, really, since the middle of the year, that started to get deployed slowly, but you still have $700 billion extra on the sidelines waiting to get deployed. So I think that means that any sort of pullbacks that we have in the market when you see days with more bad news, it gets absorbed by this cash being deployed. And it's especially your hardest hit sectors, your more cyclically, economically oriented sectors and regions that are going to see the biggest bump from this cash being deployed. And on the fixed income side, your higher risk credit, things like high yield and emerging market debt as well. And that's generally where we're tilting as well. Uh, Gabriella, back to 2007, 13 years ago, I believe the math is, the EM index, the MSCI EM index really hasn't broken out. Is now the time? I think there are so many stars aligning here for emerging markets. First, you do have this uh, visibility of a cyclical upturn forming next year and beyond with these vaccine news. Emerging markets are still cyclically oriented. Over 50% of the index is cyclical sectors. Number two, you have the result of the U.S. election in which we have a president-elect Biden that to us and to investors represents a return to more orthodox, uh, clear foreign policy that's huge for your very trade-oriented EM. And then number three, you have central banks whose reaction functions have changed so much, So, in which case you can have good news and interest rates still stay low. That's a great setup for emerging markets, not just the ones that have led this year, which is North Asia and technology, but a broader set of emerging markets. And we're extremely bullish on EM equities, on EM debt, and on FX. Gabriella, if we take a step back, the optimism that you have as you talk about this is increasingly consensus. You've got Bank of America's fund manager survey coming out and saying we're getting close to full bull here with respect to cash holdings <laughs> and the outlook on equities. And yet you've got Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital yesterday coming out with this quote in an interview with Bloomberg News. When the level of optimism is high, there is usually more room for disappointment. Can you square those two narratives, the optimism with the reality on the ground of a pandemic that's only getting worse right now? So I do think in the very short term, we are very much due for a tough time. We see cases rising significantly across the United States, very high cases in Europe. That is going to restrain the recovery here in the fourth quarter and the first quarter. But I think the vaccine news is good news because it gives investors the freedom to think less month to month and more 12 months out and beyond, which is what we should be doing. We shouldn't be thinking about the here and now so much. We should be investing for the future. And that's why I think you can have a difference uh, where cases do pick up, the news is bad in the short term, but the market is able to absorb it better looking out into the future. 
Now, it doesn't mean there won't be pullbacks, right? Um, and as you mentioned, there is a more bullish outlook now, but a much more normal pullback of 5 to 10% instead of the bear market we had last time cases were rising. Tom, is Lisa being rude to our guest? Calling our guest consensus. What? Hold on. Consensus. No, I'm not being. I'm not being Is rude. That what you just did. Were you just Wait, rude hold on to, a second, Gabriella. I'm sorry consensus. to rip up the script. Gabriella, was that rude? I think John is starting to start stuff. Maybe that is what John maybe that is what John is doing this morning. I want to turn to the FX market. That's John my pivot. Two women to Dollar China. Him. That's really good, John. Yeah, well, what's, what's you new, and Tom? two women two upset with you. It two looks sisters. better on radio than TV. <laughs> I grew up with this. I've lived it before. I'm used to it. Women unhappy with me. There's nothing new about that. Dollar China. Can I go there? An eight nine percent move from the middle of the year, Gabby. What's left to squeeze? So we're actually, uh, we think the Chinese yuan has plenty of room actually to appreciate over the next few years. Um, that's for, due to cyclical factors as you get an upturn in the global economy, as you have uh, this more uh, friendly outlook of the U.S. election. But beyond that, you have the Chinese yuan getting more and more added into investors' portfolios. You have a lot more investors also wanting to invest directly in Chinese equities and bonds. So that's also a structural support for the Chinese yuan to be one of the currencies that appreciates the most over the next decade. Okay, but Gabriella, this is one of your best things, and you can work off Feroli and Kasman here. Let's talk about the Brazilian scream, and that's not you angry at Pharaoh. The Brazilian (laughs) scream is when you get strong Brazilian real, strong Taiwanese dollar, and they start screaming about weak U.S. dollar. Is a general tendency, are we closer to that, or do we have patience out to 2022 on, on weak U.S. dollar? So I think from the Brazilian perspective, uh, it's the the second worst performing currency this year. (laughs) Um, It's depreciated close to 40 percent. There's actually much more concern about the depreciation than there is for any sort of nascent appreciation. Right. There's still the concern about the weakness of the currency feeding into higher goods prices, higher inflation and a vicious cycle with higher interest rates. So I think there's plenty of room for the real to appreciate a little bit further. Um, and Brazil, of course, is a very cyclical currency, very cyclical market. Um, so it is part and parcel of the cyclical recovery that we're seeing in global markets. And so in that sense, it's very much welcome. Gabby, great to catch up. Appreciate your time, as always. Gabriela Santos there from JP Morgan Asset Management on this market and a little bit more. Michael Kushma brings prodigious academic chops to Morgan Stanley, where he is global fixed income uh, CIO. Michael, thrilled to have you on. You know, I think of the, the multidisciplinary economics of your Columbia University is maybe a good place to start. I want to start with the monetary mystery of December and January. Is it just simply Chairman Powell to the rescue? I think that's a a lot of it. I think the Fed has been clear about its intentions to support, provide accommodation, more accommodation if necessary, to get us to a stronger economy down the road. And they obviously can't put money directly in people's pockets, but they can do every possible measure to ensure the cost of putting money in people's pockets through borrowing is at very low levels, whether it's the household, the corporate sector, or the U.S. government. 
I think, uh, Michael, of Rick Mishkin at Columbia and, of course, his, his melding of policy uh, into economics right now. What is the most efficacious policy to get us out to where these vaccines click in of this balance of fiscal, monetary, budgetary and just outright policy? What's the best mix forward? Well, the best mix is a, co is a combination. Again, the Fed cannot provide direct income support for individuals. The federal government can provide that direct support, and the Fed can help them along the way by buying the debt that the U.S. government produces in order to put money into people's pockets along the way. So it is a joint effort, combined effort, and it could it could flounder or, or, or temporarily um, go sideways when one of the three um, elements, and there's also healthcare policy, of course, on the side as well, one of the three areas, you know, flounder or stop making progress along the way. So the Fed has been quite clear that they expect the federal government to hopefully provide more income support to the, to the economy as a whole during this transition period to a vaccine. So I'm wondering, Michael, given the fact that there is incredible Fed support, there aren't a lot of bargains out there given how high asset prices are. What do you do? It's 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 you have to think longer term. So it's it's like a, a growth stock or something which is discounting a lot of good news into the future. So there's no doubt a lot of good news into the future. People can start seeing the end game, assuming these vaccines are able to be distributed in a widespread manner in the next call it's called six to nine months in a in a very widespread manner. So in terms of the opportunities, you really have to think where are we gonna be. 12 months from now, six to 12 months from now, if we think we will be on a stronger economic trajectory, there's no doubt given the monetary and fiscal support being provided and unlikely to be withdrawn through 2022, that interest rates, uh, credit spreads, interest rates should be um, at, at very low levels. You know, high yield bonds should be expensive. Investment grade bonds should be expensive. Equity should probably be high because of low interest rates are around the world and particularly in the United States. So again, you look farther out. It's not that bonds are, are, are at fair value and that doesn't make them attractive. It's that should they just be at fair value or should be, again, in the future, be well below historical fair value. If you look at investment grade credit spreads, even high yield spreads, they don't spend a lot of time around average. They either above average or below average because fundamentals are good, fundamentals are bad relative to average. They're cycling. And we think that the business cycle will improve dramatically next year. And that will cause spreads to be below average by the end of next year or by sometime between the middle of next year and the end of next year. Michael, that's credit. How difficult will it be to push that view through the yield curve? and looking for a steeper one at that. I understand we've had a one-way move since the end of February when we were down by 10, 11 basis points. We've steepened out aggressively over the last seven, eight months. But just over the last week, we had some game-changing news. 70 basis points, twos, tens, all around again, round trip. Michael White. I think there's, there's two, two, two elements. One is, sort of t is, 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 is technical. This idea of a steepening yield curve has been in place for a while. A lot of investors around the world have been putting on so-called steepening trade, you know, selling long data bonds, buying shorted data bonds. It worked. Now it's stopped to work. The rise of the pandemic, the rise of infection rates, I think, is unnerved on people in terms of the near-term Fed actions. It could be easily true that in, De in December, the Fed announces an adjustment to their quantitative you know, easing program that they actually tilt yeah. the buying to long long end of the yield curve. So there's some issues in the short term into the end of this year that Fed will adjust their policies because one, fiscal policy is now inactive. Secondly, the pandemic has gotten worse. They may feel compelled to do something and what they're likely to do is increase buying of long-term bonds, which again reduces the pressure for steepening in the short term. Michael, this conversation belongs in the future. 
for many parts of this market living in the future in 2021. I want to turn to the here and now and cross over to Berlin, Germany. When we started to see more restrictions in Europe, what we noticed this time around was pushback, more pushback and more resilience. And Tom, that's what you see on the streets of Ber Berlin today. Back in spring, it was widely accepted to go through a lockdown, to go through restrictions, to ultimately, at some point, we ended up wearing masks. What we've noticed across Europe and many other places around the world as well, this time when the government has tried to lock things down, the pushback has been so much greater than what we saw six months ago. And that's what's difficult about living too far in the future and ignoring where we are right now. In Berlin, Germany, where there are protests on the streets and the German police are firing a water cannon at the demonstrators, Tom, because they will not adhere to social distancing, they do not want to wear masks and they do not want to be locked down. How do you live in a better future in 2021 if we're still grappling with the difficulty, well, not just in Europe, but in the United States as well, in the here and now? It's called a pandemic and they're all the same every time going back. You know, I think about John Elliott Gardner's one volume on Johann Sebastian Bach and the plague that was across Germany. Uh, and I'm going to guess 1630 if my brain uh, reminds me. And I'm, I'm John, I'm just going to say it's simple. You read Camus and the plague and we're on about chapter 18 of the plague. I mean, it's that simple where there is societal protest. There's, no other way to put it. Here we have water cannons being used moments ago uh, in Berlin. It's a little bit more testy, John, than it was two hours ago. Place in riot gear on the streets of Europe trying to deal with these demonstrators. And, Michael, I just wonder, as we go through this moment around the world, a difficult moment through the back end of this year, how much a market can live in the back end of 2021, <laughs> given the difficulty that's playing out right in front of us? It's a good good question. I think it's all about the length of period of, of time. So if you think of evaluating a long data asset, whether it's an equity or a fixed income security, we're talking about 5, 10, 20 years of cash flows. If cash flows are damaged for a short period of time and not too disastrously, then you'd look through it. It's not that big a deal. And we see all the time with corporations make announcements of restructurings and big, big losses and, and big losses in book value and the stock price goes up. Well, the same thing is happening, happening now. If you have a company or a situation where this is not that bad, they can get through this and the longer term prospects are bright, you look through it. The longer this lasts, the more damaging it does to the economy, which is clearly what the Fed is concerned with, the longer damage, which means the worse cash flows are hammered, that has a bigger impact on the long-term you know, present value of, of these assets. And that is, that is the challenge, is getting people remaining confident, keeping the economy running at a reasonable pace, keeping money in people's pockets so that even if they're not spending it today, when the gates are lifted, when the lockdowns are lifted, there is money in people's pockets, whether it's the corporate sector, the household sector, they can go out and spend. And that was what's going to have a very strong pop down the road and compensates, in theory, at least for the weakness we're seeing now. Michael, great to catch up with you, sir. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Michael, Michael thank you. of Morgan Stanley <clears throat> Investment Management. Right now, it's good to speak to Dean Kernan of Macro Risk Advisors. We do that uh, because, boy, has he been right with a VIX at 41 and down we come with better stock markets. But current pointing out the election uncertainty and that would clear. And we see that at 21.98 right now on the VIX. Dean, have we cleared all of the election uncertainty? Well, for the most part, I think uh, you still got that Jan 5th date. And if you stare at um, 
the S&P um, option prices by expiration, you can actually see something pretty granular. You can look at uh, December 31st as an expiry, so right at the end of the year, and that's typically uh, a very quiet week, right, between Christmas and New Year's. So that implied volatility is pretty low, uh, but you can go out to January 8th, and you see there's actually a bump up. So that date between those two expirations, January 5th, that Georgia runoff date, actually does have some consequence, at least in terms of how um, vol markets are pricing. So, Dean, can we just zoom out a little bit? We've been talking about full bull, as John highlighted, from the Bank of America survey that came out yesterday. We're hearing about how people are expecting some sort of disturbances over the next couple of weeks and months as people uh, calibrate uh, themselves and their outlooks to the near-term reality of a pandemic that's worsening. What do you foresee, based on the bullish trends in the markets that you track, the technical factors, how much of a pullback could we get? Well, it's anyone's guess. I think, um, you know, really it comes down to the uh, response from the government. I think the, the thing we have to worry about is whether the, you know, the Congress pulls off, pulls off a stimulus or not. I think that's really, you know, the, the weak spot for the market is, is the politics of it. Uh, Dean Kernett with us right now. Jen Fro, I do want to point out housing statistics out, and they are a better the halves of the economy, certainly repositioning uh, in housing. Let me get that up right now with a constructive revision uh, as well on housing. I'm not going to give you too much of the data other than to say month over month. It's a very strong beat on housing starts. And critically, the previous, uh, the previous month was a huge revision upward as well. Not so much moving the bond market, John, but again, that two-part America, on America struggling and also a booming yeah. housing economy. It's a really good upside surprise. 4.9% month on month. The median estimate, 3.2%. The revision, Tom, you talk of a revision. The previous month, 1.9%. The upward revision, 6.3%. That's housing starts. And this has been a really, really solid part of this economy, Dean. The housing sector has just yeah. done terrifically well. Low rates, people are spending on their houses. Home Depot to the moon. That's been a really great story for 2020. Dean, the small caps, let's talk about the story that hasn't worked and is starting to work. The cyclical parts of this market, the small caps. Can you walk me through the trend there and whether that is durable? That's been the big debate over the last week, how durable some of these catch-up moves have been. I think that's, uh, that's uh, obviously on people's minds and, and certainly a, a question that we fielded, um, you know, quite frequently last week was just this epic move in the factor rotations, right? People are calling it a 15th standard deviation move from... Um, you know, from growth to value. And, and people are asking, is that just an indication of how crowded the, the space, you know, has been in terms of positioning and, and things like growth and the underpositioning and value? I, I think there's something to that. I think the other part is, uh, look, we, you know, we, we've got pricing in the market that reflects a truly unusual and unprecedented consequence. Um, we, we sort of knew when this vaccine announcement ultimately came, we were going to have this, you know, this big rotation. I think, um, you know, the, the question around value and just the, the sort of more old economy type of stocks, um, I, I think is an important one. Um, look, I think we have a permanently changed economy in a lot of ways, uh, but we are slowly coming back. And when I step back and I just look at the broad picture of risk, I see option prices that, you know, as Tom was, was saying, we, we were expecting normalization post the election, but I still see them as something you can utilize in your portfolio and more on the short side than on the long side. So these option premiums are sort of the last war for the Fed to, to push lower. Um, you know, they, they, they crushed FX vol, they crushed rate vol, 
um, you know, that that is was a, a major part of how they had to restore market functioning back in in, in the March lows. Um, but you still yeah. have very high option prices as we start 2021. And I just think you can use them as an income generating part of your portfolio. Well, Dean, I want to pick up on that word you used, normal. Pre-pandemic, there was nothing really normal about the low volatility regime we were in for so many years with the VIX down towards 10. Right now, 21, south of 22, just. Dean, what is normal? And what do you think is the normal that we need to get used to? You know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the post-crisis period, the, the GFC. And, you know, we had the aftershocks of the flash crash in 2010. Then we had the Eurozone crisis 2011 and 2012. And then we had this long, long period where the economy was clearly normalizing. But um, behind the, the push towards trying to, you know, get the labor market back on its feet, Fed policy stood in town, stayed in town much longer than you would have thought. And uh, that normalization in the VIX from call it 2012 to 2015, 2016, you had an average VIX of about 15 for that period. And I think that's just my playbook is that you have a crisis, you have an asset price shock, you have a massive policy response each time it gets bigger and bigger. And then even as people argue, well, maybe we don't need as much Fed, you know, of the Fed guardrails as we have, as we had during the crisis, the guardrails stay up. And ultimately, those guardrails, they work a little bit on the real economy, but really what they impact is asset prices. And I think they've, they've impacted FX vol. They've you know, taken interest rate volatility to the lows. And it's just this equity volatility that I think still stands out as something that's, you know, it's got some normalization into, uh, into 2021. You know, Dean, I've been struck by the recent volatility and how it upended a lot of quant funds in particular that have posted some pretty uh, stark returns based on the fact that you cannot plan for a vaccine. You cannot plan for some sort of uh, fiscal uh, bill that is or isn't uh, passed. And you can't necessarily uh, plan for a Fed response based on that news. Has the old model just been completely upended? I I think you could make that argument that um, the 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 notion of the carry trade is a very difficult one to, um, you know, to, to keep pursuing in, in the sense that we know there's risk premium in markets. There are these sources of return that uh, some of the quant funds and some of the more volatility-oriented strategies have targeted. But when you get these very unusual factors, um, you know, this, yeah. again, this year being you know, so unusual, it just makes the sharp ratio of a lot of these strategies um, compromise yeah. and, and all else equal less attractive. Very quickly, images from Berlin of water cannons. I mean, this started out peaceful with Francine LaCroix earlier this morning. And with that image there, you don't see it on Bloomberg Radio right now. It's just crowds assembled in autumnal Berlin. And moments ago, there was substantial use of water cannons. We don't see that right now, but uh, there it is. I'm, I'm going to call it a more distressing situation. Dean Kernett, your world seems so removed from pandemic agony. Are you surprised by that? I think that, uh, you know, this is a a very, um, I think 2021 is going to be challenging in the sense that the social aspects of, you know, this pandemic are unrelenting and and they're so significant. Um, You know, the policy response in some ways creates additional um, dislocations in terms of, um, you know, the haves and have nots. Um, So it's going to be very tricky, especially as we transition to, a new administration and one that wants to re-embrace globalism. Um, there's a lot of those uncertainties, you know, out there. I think geopolitics have been typically more bark than bite. Um, but 
we always have to just keep an eye on the, the types of things that markets tend to forget over time. You know, we cross different things uh, off our worry list, but, uh, um, you know, oftentimes there's just things that we can't predict. So, you know, even as we say, use volatility, use options on the short side to try to generate some premium in 2021, we have to be on guard for the, the types of things that can go wrong. And then what do we learn? We learn that over time, during, especially during the good times, we underestimate the jump to illiquid conditions, right? The speed with which markets can turn very illiquid very quickly. I think that's a key lesson from 2020 and something that as we talk to you know, our clients um, at the back end of an incredible year in so many ways, it's yeah. just to be prepared you know, for the unexpected. A record high in the stock market in February, a month before we locked things down in America, and a record high in the stock market as things are locking down again. Not in the same way, but it's similar. Dean, great to catch up, sir. As always, Dean Kern at Macro Risk Advisor, CEO. Right now, on temperature, because of physics, the thermodynamics of all this vaccine talk is about temperature keeping vaccines safe for transport, making them efficacious up to the point of an injection. Franz Werner Haas joins us right now with CureVac of Germany to talk of this temperature. Franz, how do you, Franz Werner, how do you react to one vaccine at an unimaginable 90 degrees Fahrenheit and another one being refrigerated? How does that occur? Well, it depends most probably on how you're um, working with the mRNA, how you're stabilizing the RNA, and how you're manufacturing the RNA. Um, uh, this is more or less the the, the only points where uh, it really could make a difference. And uh, as we are holding on the RNA um, for all our vaccines, we have got a rabies vaccine, which is um, already in the clinics uh, for a while, that we have seen that the property is that you can have RNA pretty stable. Uh, and then certainly on the product by product or target by target, you have to reevaluate uh, again. And with the COVID-19 vaccine candidate we have got in the clinic, we see the three months. Well, the, you see it within three months, but the mystery, I think, to all of our viewers and listeners is almost back to the 1950s. And I remember the liquid nitrogen in doctors' offices as well. Is that what we're heading back to, is we're going to have those metal containers with the smoke coming out of them when I was a kid? No, I don't think so. Um, as uh, we have got a stability of the COVID-19 vaccine candidate already at three months, and this is up uh, to, to uh, three months minimum. So it will be extended because all what we do is real time. And you have to see that uh, now the RNA vaccines, not only in our hands, but also in the hands of the others, this is brand new, we can make a difference. And then certainly the development of the stability will increase as well and will uh, will get better and better over time. This is what we see. And, you know, this is really something we have to work on and we will. So given the fact that you're on the front lines of this actually manufacturing uh, potential vaccines, can you give us a sense of your timeline of how quickly you think that manufacturing could get ramped up and distribution channels could get uh, solidified so that we get a critical mass of people uh, immunized against the virus? 
Well, you know, we are mRNA manufacturers, not only developers on the one side for the molecule, but to have it as products, but also manufacturing, because this is what you need since 2006. And it is certainly the scale up you always do according to what you have got in the pipeline. What is the need you really to, uh, to have the capacity for? When we started two years ago with our fourth product line, um, which is an industrial scale, uh, nobody really was believing in uh, that you need this big scale. Certainly nobody knew at the time that we are talking about COVID-19. But since the beginning of this year, all this capacity which is going to be built up, and as we are actually building this up, not only we uh, at Curevac, also others, uh, this is mRNA uh, capacity which stays even beyond COVID-19. It will be a part of the preparedness uh, uh, thought, because there will be other viruses coming, and, and RNA can make a difference, obviously, and, and for that the capacity is there. But you can't get from zero to 100 within a minute, but uh, all what is, at the moment, what we see as scaled up worldwide, globally, um, beyond CureVac even, there will be enough capacity to, to really vaccinate the world well, let's say until the end of next year. So, uh, Franz Werner, when you talk about mRNA and uh, the potential differences between the vaccines, Tom Keen's ears light up, uh, or his eyes light up and his ears perk up as he tries to uh, imagine the, uh, the the sequencing here. Most people's eyes glaze over. They don't know the difference from one vaccine to another. People talk about how it's important to have multiple vaccines, but does it complicate the issue? I mean, who gets what and why is that important? Well, we will see as, as this is what we are doing is all in real time. If you compare it with other vaccine developing uh, uh, strategy in, in the past, so whatever was a, uh, the real uh, world in the past, this really has been accelerated without doing any concession to the safety and tolerability of the vaccine. But you have to see it target by target. And this is COVID-19 and what it does to the immune system, how long the protection will be. This is all to be seen. At the moment, there are, you know, hat uh, <clears throat> runners uh, on not only mRNA, but also on protein-based and uh, viral vector-based technologies. And we will have to see how long is really the protection level, uh, the memory effect, and what does it do to uh, the different immune systems of, uh, well, people with indications, uh, respiratory indications, elderly people. And this is all what we will find out. What we see is that most probably most of the vaccines differently have different properties and then certainly for the different needs. And therefore, it is good to have more than just one vaccine in order to see this later, what is most appropriate for which kind of target population. Sir, thank you so much for joining us today. Franz Werner Haas with CureVac of uh, Germany. Greatly, greatly uh, appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.